If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. With your mind? Because you're sending it to Mar-a-Lago or to wherever you're sending it. Where? And there doesn't have to be a process. You're the president. You make that decision. So when you send it, it's declassified. Where are you sending it? And you've declassified it with your mind? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why I came. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis, St. Paul's. AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day for you on the internet on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing, Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. A <sighs> lot to get through here, Desi Doyen. A <laughs> yes. lot to get to. Um, uh, uh, let me start here, though. A, a commenter named Mr. Tucker over at Daily Coast, where we post each day's broadcast, uh, responded to Wednesday's show to say, quote, It's only Wednesday, and we have special Master Deary calling the former guy's legal team's bluff. Then Attorney General James dropping a massive civil suit, followed by the 11th Circuit ruling. What a week. I wonder how long before Fonnie Willis joins the action. I'm giddy with excitement. Well, <laughs> I hear you, Mr. Tucker. Don't get too giddy just yet. However, as Marcy Wheeler reminded us on yesterday's show, all of this takes time. It takes Patience uh, is in Fannie Willis's case. The Fulton County, Atlanta, Georgia prosecutor has recently said she's going to make her decision whether to call Donald Trump in before her special grand jury examining his failed conspiracy to steal the 2020 presidential election in the Peach State and whether to declare him a target for possible indictment at some point this fall, she told the Washington Post a week or so ago. That would be before the grand jury completes its work in Georgia before the end of the year when they will make their determinations about who should be indicted in that state, that criminal state case. 
But yes, you have made it this far, Mr. Tucker. You will uh, you'll make it until uh, various indictments come down in all of the ongoing cases. While I always thought that Georgia would be the first one to bring indictments against Trump. Well, frankly, that was before we learned that Donald Trump had stolen more than 10,000 pages of government documents. More than 1,000 of them marked as highly classified national security secrets in a case where indictments could actually come before all of the others, especially given what we learned from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals on Wednesday night. So you are welcome to be giddy that things are, in fact, moving in the right direction, Mr. Tucker and that the walls are indeed closing in on the former guy quicker and quicker with each passing day, I would add, uh, as we have long told you that they would. I would also add that today I am feeling uh, personally much better about our federal judicial system than I was yesterday morning. That, thanks to that ruling from the 11th Circuit on Wednesday night, I'm still very concerned about uh, the federal judiciary Uh, And I believe that it needs serious, serious reform following, you know, at least four years of Trump and McConnell abuse. And that's just one of the reasons why it's so important to elect Democrats this November to give them a large enough majority in the Senate that they can reform the filibuster so that they can move things like court reform forward and and, of course, codify protections of Roe v. Wade into uh, federal law and protect voting rights before 2024, etc. But in any event, had the 11th Circuit thrown in with the Trump-appointed U.S. District Court Judge and loon Eileen Cannon on the DOJ's appeal to her absurd rulings regarding a special master to determine whether classified national security secrets found at Mar-a-Lago were actually classified national security secrets. That's what I feared as as of yesterday afternoon when we were on the air. Uh, But that changed by uh, Wednesday night. If, If they had not found against her and in favor of the DOJ, I would have been much more concerned than I am today. Yes. As it turns out, I think you I mean, agree. It was, I was very worried because it was a big uh, a big signpost potentially. So Yeah, potentially. And, you know, we're certainly not clear, but it turns out that some Trump-appointed judges are not willing to go along with his twisted sort of fantasy world to that end. Uh, In a stark, I would say, devastating repudiation of Trump's legal arguments, a three-judge federal appeals court panel featuring two Trump-appointed judges on Wednesday night permitted the Justice Department to resume its use of classified records that were seized from the former president's Florida state as part of its ongoing criminal investigation. And they did so with lightning speed. They did so just one day after receiving Team Trump's response to the DOJ's appeal. The 29-page ruling amounts to an overwhelming and, frankly, complete victory and vindication for the Justice Department on the heels of Judge Cannon's absurd ruling to allow a special master to decide if documents marked as classified were actually classified. 
as those liars at the DOJ <laughs> and the Department of Homeland Security had claimed, and as the documents were plainly marked for anyone to see, uh, and to determine which of them might have somehow been the personal property of Donald Trump rather than of the federal government, which is also absurd, and which of them might be somehow protected by executive privilege from the executive branch itself, which is also cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, especially since the person who determines whether executive privilege can be asserted or applied is the president of the United States himself, which Donald Trump is decidedly not. Everything about what Judge Cannon did in this case was insane, ridiculous, without basis, unprecedented, stupid, without evidence. And thankfully, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, even though six of its 11 judges were appointed by Donald Trump, well, they appear to be very clearly understanding just how mad all of Judge Cannon's insane rulings were that I had trouble even talking about on the show because I thought I must be missing something because they were so insane. Apparently, uh, they were insane. I wasn't missing anything. And the 11th Circuit seems to back that up. Quote, it is self-evident that the public has a strong interest in ensuring that the storage of the classified records did at Mar-a-Lago did not result in exceptionally grave damage to the national security, the judges wrote in their unanimous decision, asserting that, they added, necessarily involves reviewing the documents, determining who had access to them and when and and when and deciding which, if any, sources or our methods are compromised. The three-judge panel found that, quote, the district court abused its discretion in exercising jurisdiction as it concerns the classified documents in its ruling in favor of Donald Trump. Ouch. Uh, I mean, that was wildly polite. Uh, uh, that was a nice way of putting it. Yes. That you uh, abused your discretion. Yeah. For our part, they write, we cannot discern why plaintiff, that would be Trump, would have an individual interest in or need for any of the documents with classification markings. Classified documents are marked to show that they are classified, for instance, with their classification level. They are owned by, produced by, or for, or under the control of the United States government, and they include information that... Uh, they include information, the unauthorized disclosure of which could reasonably be expected to cause identifiable or describable damage to the national security. For this reason, a person may have access to classified information only if, among other requirements, he has a need to know the information. This requirement pertains equally to former presidents unless the current administration in its discretion chooses to waive that requirement plaintiff they note has not even attempted to show that he has a need to know the information contained in the classified documents 
And as the uh, judges wrote, no party has offered anything beyond speculation to undermine the U.S.'s rep uh, representation, supported by sworn testimony, that findings from the criminal investigation may be critical to its national security review. Moreover, they write, quote, plaintiff suggests that he may have declassified these documents when he was president, but the record contains no evidence that any of these records were declassified. And then here they added the important part. In any event, at least for these purposes, the declassification argument is a red herring. Well, thank you. A red herring because declassifying an official document would not change its content or render it to be a personal document. Correct. But even more importantly, the classification argument is a complete and total red herring because it does not matter whether these documents are or were classified or not when it comes to things like the Espionage Act, which does not even refer to classified documents. It refers to national security information and to the Presidential Records Act, which mandates that all records belong to the American people, not to the former executive and federal statutes uh, regarding obstruction, which are all in play in the DOJ's probe because Trump lied about having those stolen documents in the first place and in the second place and in the third place each time that the National Archives and the Department of Justice attempted to get the documents back before they finally had to get a federal judge to approve a search warrant to be executed at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, no matter who you are, you are not allowed to defy a legal subpoena. Trump has literally no case here. His own appointed judges on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals have now recognized that in no uncertain terms and frankly, it's quite scathing terms. So all of this now clears the way for investigators to continue scrutinizing the documents as they consider whether or not to bring criminal charges against Trump under the Espionage Act, the Presidential Records Act, and or for obstruction. And they have uh, moderately offered all of us a reprieve in determining uh, a determination of just how broken the U.S. court system has become after years of it being packed and stolen by Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump and their corrupt Republican Party. At least today, we can feel like it is not all that not all hope is lost. In any event, <clears throat> I hope to uh, not have to, to have to discuss uh, that dumb judge Eileen Cannon in relation to this story anymore. And I hope to not have to discuss it at all until the day the indictments come down, which, as of Wednesday night, uh, probably just got a whole lot sooner on our calendar. As the court's ruling has now uh, paved a glide path toward the indictment of Donald J. Trump, at least as I see it. In other uh, accountability for criminal jackasses who don't believe the law applies to them news... Uh, it's been a bad week or two for the pillow guy, and it is getting worse by the day, it seems. Earlier this week, a Minnesota district court judge on Monday denied my pillow CEO Mike Lindell's motion to toss out a lawsuit brought by a voting tech vendor that claims 
that Lindell defamed it by pushing the false narrative that the 2020 election was stolen. No, this is not Dominion. They have a separate but similar defamation suit pending against Lindell. This company is Smartmatic, a company that provided election systems only to Los Angeles County in the 2020 election, which I don't even I don't even think Lindell is pretending uh, that L.A. County was stolen for uh, Joe Biden. So why then has Smartmatic been paired along with Dominion in all of these false claims from these uh, you know, actual wingnuts that the two companies were somehow in cahoots to steal the election from Donald Trump? Well, that is thanks to an insanely misread exclusive series of articles written by me from 2008 to 2010 at bradblog.com, which these jackasses completely bastardized. Thanks, Brad. You're welcome to pretend that both Dominion and Smartmatic were somehow secretly the same company or something. They're not. So, yeah, you're welcome. The uh, Smartmatic suit against Lindell alleges that both he and MyPillow defamed the voting tech company by falsely promoting the theory that its machines had been hacked or rigged in favor of Joe Biden. Lindell moved to dismiss the complaint, arguing that uh, he and the company, uh, I'm sorry, that that because he and the company are being sued, but he claims that Smartmatic failed to adequately plea the defamation claim and that the deceptive trade practices claims fail because Lindell was acting in a personal, not professional capacity when he was out there making statements about the 2020 election, even while he was uh, hawking, uh, you know, discounts off of my pillow products. But they're totally not related. He was only doing that in his personal capacity as the CEO who has the power to offer those discounts. But uh, the U.S. District Judge Wilhelmina Wright on Monday denied both Lindell's and MyPillow's motion uh, to dismiss, concluding that Smartmatic has, in fact, alleged sufficient facts to support its defamation claim. Now, this doesn't mean that Lindell and MyPillow lose the defamation suit. It simply means that it may now proceed toward trial. But if you think that's the only thing likely to be keeping Lindell up at night other than his crappy pillows, well, he's got even more trouble, it seems. The defamation suits against him and Smartmatic, uh, by uh, by Smartmatic against him and Dominion against him, yes, could end up costing him tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars. But the federal criminal probe that he is facing could land him in federal prison. And like dumb Donald Trump, Lindell is more than happy to waste his own money in fighting the federal effort. On Tuesday, the day after Lindell got that bad news uh, on Monday that the case, the defamation case could proceed against him. Well, Lindell filed a lawsuit uh, against the Justice Department, claiming that his first, fourth, fifth and sixth amendment rights had all been violated when FBI agents executed a search warrant to seize his phone on September 13 at a Hardee's drive through which we previously <laughs> described as terrible news because Hardee's is just the worst, just <laughs> the worst. Anyway... Uh, as we told you at the time when we first reported that, everyone was, you know, giddy with excitement that one of Trump's top election denying doofuses had his phone seized and what bad news that could be for Trump himself. But the the feds 
actually, as we told you, had been seizing that phone, it appeared, in regard to their investigation of the unlawful voting system software breach in Mesa County, Colorado. There, state authorities have long been investigating the Mesa County clerk, Tina Peters, who snuck into the county's voting equipment room in the middle of the night with two accomplices, turned off the security cameras, made illegal copies of the highly sensitive Dominion voting system election management software. That software was then ultimately released to the public for download while Peters just happened to be speaking at Mike Lindell's silly cyber symposium in South Dakota last year where he was pretending to offer evidence of a rigged 2020 election, though he never actually gave any. Peters was eventually indicted on 10 state counts related to the uh, to the matter by Colorado authorities, along with several accomplices, at least one of whom is now cooperating with law enforcement officials there. And now Lindell taking a page maybe from Donald Trump and his failed attempt to stop a federal criminal investigation right in the middle of it. Now Lindell is suing to get his phone back, his phone with, you know, the evidence purportedly (laughs) on it as the uh, feds and a federal judge seem to believe. And in the process of suing, he has now confirmed that this, in fact, is all about that software breach in Colorado and his personal participation in it. The Justice Department is investigating Lindell for apparently identity theft intentional damage to a protected computer and conspiracy to commit identity theft or intentionally damage a protected computer in connection with that breach of Colorado's voting system software. That, according to the warrant that Lindell received when the FBI took his phone last week, and then he included that warrant in the federal lawsuit filed on Wednesday to try and get his phone back. As Reuters reports, the new details about the focus of the investigation were confirmed after Lindell's attorneys uploaded a copy of the search and seizure warrant approved again by a U.S. magistrate judge in federal court on September 7 on the on the basis of probable cause that Lindell may have, in fact, violated federal law. The suspected breach in Colorado led uh, the Secretary of State there, Jenna Griswold, to decertify the county's 41 devices. And she accused Mesa County clerk and recorder Tina Peters of assisting with that breach. The warrant indicates the warrant for Lindell indicates that the FBI is looking for, quote, all records and information related to damage to any Dominion computerized voting system and other related data. According to the warrant, the feds are investigating Lindell, Peters and other co-conspirators, including those who are, quote, known and unknown to the government. The leaked data from the breached voting machines uh, was leaked during Lindell's dumb cyber symposium last year, but it led to a panic out here in California because it happened just before the same systems were to be used in several different counties here in California in the during the GOP's attempted and failed recall of Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom last year. Cybersecurity and voting systems experts were and are very worried about what all of these breaches of these 
uh, voting systems and their software. Uh, they were worried about what it may have meant in that election last year. And of course, they're worried about what it means for the upcoming 2022 and 2024 elections. And while the software was leaked during Lindell's event, there had not yet been any indications that Lindell himself was somehow directly involved in Peter's scheme, at least until now. Now, he did admit, uh, you may recall, to helping her to hide from authorities after the software was released and Colorado made it clear they were looking for her. She was hiding. She was go going from safe house to safe house, apparently, uh, funded, we were told, by Mike Lindell until she eventually went back to Colorado. But Lindell has also bragged about giving her hundreds of thousands of dollars for her defense or for her travel or for her to move from one location to another, even though the legal limit in Colorado for gifts to public officials is $65. He had said, I believe he gave her something like six hundred dollars or $800,000. Well, I'm no math whiz, but that, I'm pretty <laughs> sure $65 is really different from hundreds of thousands and, of dollars. And that might be a problem, by the way, at the state level, separate from these uh, federal concerns that the DOJ now has with, uh, with Lindell. The betting magnate eventually uh, walked back his claim that he had given her hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, saying he, he only thought mistakenly he'd done so because he was financing everything back then, he said, referring to, you know, is referring to all of the election related legal battles, he told The New York Times. So how much trouble is uh, Pillow Boy actually in at the state and or federal level at this point? Well, that remains to be seen. But this confirms once again, at least the feds are, in fact, probing at least the voting software breach in Colorado. And hopefully that means they're also breaching the nearly identical uh, probing, the nearly identical breaches in several Michigan townships in Coffee County, Georgia, where the Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's office has been covering up a very serious days long breach by the MAGA folks who blatantly lied about all of it during depositions in Marilyn Marx's federal lawsuit. That's going to be a problem. Uh, also breaches in Pennsylvania and Nevada. So I'm hoping the feds are looking at all of this. And all of these happen because these people are dumb enough or corrupt enough to buy into Trump's crybaby, sore loser, whining that he couldn't possibly have lost the election that he lost. These dumb dupes bought into it and have now maybe bought their way into bankruptcy or prison or both. And speaking of dumb and corrupt enough dupes, hardline right-wing activist Ginny Thomas, wife of hardline right-wing Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, also an activist, uh, has agreed for some reason to give testimony in front of the House January 6th committee in the coming weeks, according to her attorney. That attorney said in a statement on Wednesday night, quote, I can confirm that Ginny Thomas has agreed to participate in a voluntary interview with the committee, adding, uh, as she has said from the outset, Mrs. Thomas is eager to answer the committee's questions to clear up any misconceptions 
about her work, work, relating to the 2020 elections. Well, she is so eager to clear up these misconceptions that it has taken her about four months to agree to do so since she initially insisted that she could not wait to talk to the committee, saying, quote, at the time, four months ago, that she, quote, looks forward to doing so to, quote, clear up misconceptions. But that was, of course, before her lawyer backed off of all of this on her behalf, saying that they needed a, a quote, better justification for allowing her to speak to the committee. Uh, the invitation was first extended to Ginny after it was revealed back in June that she had been in communications with John Eastman. He's one of the corrupt lawyers in Trump's election theft team and that she was in communication with White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, urging him in text after text. Dozens of them. Following the 2020 election to, you know, try to keep stealing the election, Mark. And that she had sent emails pushing state lawmakers to steal the election in their states. And after her admission that she attended the January 6th Trump rally preceding the attack on the Capitol when MAGA world ultimately failed in its most aggressive and deadly effort to try and steal the 2020 election. So this this should be interesting. Ginny Thomas is going to be answering questions by the way it is a violation of the law to lie to congress Ginny thomas ought to know that but just saying so it should be interesting the news about her interview with the committee comes one day after committee chair benny thompson had confirmed to cnn uh, the schedule, uh, the the next scheduled date for the next public committee hearing. So you can now, I guess, mark this on your calendar. Congressman Thompson said the hearing will take place on September 28 at 1 p.m. Eastern time, according to CNN, which said that as of now, the hearing has not been formally announced by the committee, but will be the panel's last one until it releases its final report, which is expected by the end of the year. So September 28, that is Wednesday. Mark it on your calendars. Thomas told CNN that unless something, el unless something else develops, this hearing at this point is the final hearing. But he said it's not in stone because things happen. Stuff keeps happening. Stuff. Well, yeah, and one of those things hap happened on Wednesday night. Just a few hours later was Ginny Thomas agreeing to testify. We don't know when and if she will uh, do that, if it'll be before next week's hearings or not. Thompson said the panel has decided on a hearing topic, but he did not elaborate on what it was. The theme will be one that the panel has not previously explored, he said. He added, we have substantial footage of what occurred that we have not used. He told CNN, we haven't uh, we've had significant witness testimony that we haven't used in other hearings. So this is an opportunity to use some of that. So there is your vague heads up about what may be the last January 6th committee hearing currently scheduled 1 p.m. September 28. We will, of course, have special coverage that same day, I suspect. But it is noteworthy, at least to me, that Benny Thompson's comments came prior to Ginny Thomas, Thomas's the revelations that commitment. she's going to. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if that's going to change things or not, but that's to that's where we are at this time as to whether the 
federal government will really ultimately ever bring charges against the one guy, the one guy who without him, none of this, none of this would be happening in this country. Well, Merrick Garland offered some hints, I think, in some moving remarks that he made over this past weekend about whether there will ever actually be charges against that one guy, Donald Trump, without whom all of this madness would have never happened. He offered some hints in some remarks he made over the weekend. Those hints and those remarks, and by the way, Desi Doyen's Green News report, report are all <laughs> still ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. Back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So it does seem, I think, like most of the skeptics of U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland, whether he was actually taking the threat to our nation that is Donald Trump seriously enough, I think most of those skeptics have quieted down of late amid all of the action that the DOJ is now quite obviously taking on that front. But there is uh, still a question of whether or not Merrick Garland will ever actually approve real federal charges, criminal charges against a former president. I, I think he may have offered more than a few hints uh, during a little noticed a speech that he gave over the weekend while he was presiding over a ceremony to swear in 200 new American citizens in Ellis Island's Great Hall. Of course, the remarks were news newsworthy and noteworthy, if only because they come amid the GOP's latest pretend immigration crisis, which, like clockwork, they always reliably try to crank up just before elections. Yeah, especially because all their other tricks aren't really working this time around. Right. So so, you know, oh, it's election time. Let's but uh, the caravans are com coming. Let's fly migrants to Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> you know, eh, it's, let's you can, treat people you can, like trash for political gain. You can set your watch by it anyway. So uh, his comments were, were noteworthy on on in that respect alone that the uh, Biden administration is is standing up for immigration and migrants. Uh, but his remarks were uh, a time quite moving. He had a tough time keeping himself together while discussing his own family's immigration history and history during the Holo Holocaust. That alone is worth sharing these remarks. But for other reasons that I hope you will be able to hear, please listen closely beyond the emotional and very moving stuff. Um, his remarks are noteworthy, I think, at a moment in American history when he is almost certainly right now on the brink 
if he hasn't decided already, on the brink of deciding whether or not for the first time in American history, criminal charges may be brought against a former president of the United States. Keeping that in mind, well, judge for yourself. Give a listen. Here's Merrick Garland this past weekend, uh, right after swearing in 200 new American citizens. Just now... Each of you took an oath of allegiance to the United States. In so doing, you took your place alongside generations who came before you, many through this very building, seeking protection, freedom, and opportunity. This country, your country, wholeheartedly welcomes you. I know that you have made sacrifices in order to be here today. You should be proud of all you have accomplished. I am proud of you. You have made the decision to become Americans not only at an important time in our country's history, but on an important day. It was 235 years ago on this day September 17, 1787, that 39 delegates to the Constitutional Convention, representing 12 states, signed their names to the Constitution of the United States. Like you, those who signed the Constitution were relatively new Americans. In fact, American had, America had only existed for 11 years at that point. Like you, those Americans had great hopes for their own future and for the future of their new country. In the preamble of the Constitution, those Americans enumerated those hopes to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and importantly, in their words, to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Like them, each of you has now made a commitment not only to this nation and your fellow Americans, but to the generations of Americans who will come after you. In that commitment, you have given your posterity and the posterity of all of us a precious gift. I know how valuable that gift is. Because it is the same one my grandparents gave my family and me. I come from a family of immigrants who fled religious persecution early in the 20th century and sought refuge here in the United States. Some of my family entered right here at Ellis Island. My grandmother is one of five children born in what is now Belarus. Three made it to the United States, including my grandmother, who came through the port of Baltimore. Two did not make it. Those two were killed in the Holocaust. 
not from Erica. There is little doubt that the same would have happened to my grandmother. But this country took her in. And under the protection of our laws, she was able to live without fear of persecution. I'm also married to the daughter of an immigrant who came through the Port of New York in 1938. Shortly after Hitler's army entered Austria that year, my wife's mother escaped to the United States. Under the protection of our laws, she too was able to live without fear of persecution. That protection is what distinguishes America from so many other countries. The protection of law, the rule of law, is the foundation of our system of government. The rule of law means that the same laws apply to all of us, regardless of whether we are this country's newest citizens or whether our countries have been here for generations. The rule of law means that the law treats each of us alike. There is not one rule for friends, another for foes, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich, another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one race or ethnicity or country of origin. The rule of law means that we are all protected in the exercise of our civil rights, in our freedom to worship and to think as we please, and in the peaceful expression of our opinions, our beliefs, and our ideas. Of course, we still have work to do to make a more perfect union. Although the rule of law has always been our guiding light, we have not always been faithful to it. The rule of law is not assured. It is fragile. It demands constant effort and vigilance. The responsibility to ensure the rule of law is and has been the duty of every generation in our country's history. It is now your duty as well. And it is one that is especially urgent today at a time of intense polarization in America. The United States is no stranger to what our founders called the risk of faction. Alexander Hamilton and James Madison wrote about it in the Federalist Papers. George Washington warned against it in his farewell address. Overwhelming the, overcoming the current polarization in our public life is and will continue to be a difficult task. But we cannot overcome it by ignoring it. We must address the fractures in our society with honesty, with humility, and with respect for the rule of law. This demands that we tolerate peaceful disagreement with one another on issues of politics and policy. It demands that we listen to each other even when we disagree. And it demands that we reject violence and threats of violence 
that endanger each other and endanger our democracy. We must not allow the fractures between us to fracture our democracy. We are all in this together. We are all Americans. On this historic day and in this historic place, let us make a promise that each of us will protect each other and our democracy, that we will honor and defend our Constitution, that we will recognize and respect the dignity of our fellow Americans, that we will uphold the rule of law and seek to make real the promise of equal justice under law, that we will do what is right, even if that means doing what is difficult, and that we will do these things, not only for ourselves, but for the generations of Americans who will come after us. I have often thought about what members of my family felt as they came through buildings like this. And I have often thought about what their decisions meant for my own life. My family story is what motivated me to choose a career in public service. I wanted to repay my country for taking my family in when they had nowhere else to go. I wanted to repay the debt my family owes this country for our very lives. My family members who immigrated here have now long since passed. I regret that I cannot express to them how grateful I am for the gift they gave me in choosing to come to this country. So, let me thank each of you. Thank you for choosing America as your home. Thank you for the courage and dedication and work that has brought you here. Thank you for all you will do to help our country live up to its highest ideals. Thank you on behalf of a nation that is fortunate to call you as its citizens. And thank you upon behalf of the generation of Americans who will come after you. Thank you all. Now, it's an emotional U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland at the swearing-in ceremony for new American citizens last weekend at Ellis Island, um, which were obviously moving remarks about his family uh, coming over here, those uh, family members who were lost in the Holocaust. But this all comes at a moment when Merrick Garland is deciding whether or not to bring criminal charges against the president of the United States. A momentous decision. 
And when he's referring to the rule of law, that it, uh, the, the same laws apply to all of us, regardless of whether we're this country's newest citizens or whether our families have been here for generations. The rule of law treats each of us alike. There's not one rule for friends, another for foes, one for powerful, another for the powerless, a rule for the rich, another for the poor. Uh, that equal justice under the law applies to all. Well, he wrote those comments, you know, amid all of this madness and the considerations of whether Donald Trump will be the first president of the United States who ever faces, who has ever faced uh, criminal charges. So keep that in mind. It sure sounds like he's thought a lot of this through. I don't know how he can make those remarks and then decide to not bring accountability for the former president. We shall see. We shall see indeed. Quick break, and we are back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. Right after this, I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to the Bradcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. By the way, uh, while we were listening to the attorney general there, uh, some breaking news from the special master who is still overseeing this uh, the, this case, reviewing these documents obtained by the DOJ at Trump's Mar-a-Lago uh, news the, from the special master, Judge Raymond Deary. He has ordered the Trump attorneys in the case to say whether or not the former president believes that the FBI actually lied about the documents that were seized, and if so, what is their evidence for that? He has also asked the Trump attorneys to back up Trump's claims that the FBI planted evidence at Mar-a-Lago. Sounds like this special master, who, by the way, was chosen by the uh, Trump attorneys themselves, uh, is not putting up with any crap from the Trump attorneys yeah. or from, from Donald Trump. It sure does sound like he's saying, look, guys, I see what you've been saying on TV and what Trump has been saying on TV. So now it's time. Put up or shut up. You put that in a way that is accept acceptable for the FCC that I might not have. <laughs> that said, let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. It's time for an intervention. We need to hold fossil fuel companies and their enablers to account. U.N. Secretary General calls for fossil fuel industry to pay for climate damages. I just want to say one word to you. Yes, sir. Plastics. New initiative takes on plastics and the petrochemical industry. Plus... If we want to beat China, pass the Kigali Treaty. U.S. Senate approves the first climate treaty in decades. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. We have a rendezvous with climate disasters. I can think of sexier rendezvous. This is your Green News Report. I'm gonna soak up the sun. 
Okay, that's joined. It is Climate Week in New York City as the UN General Assembly meets. Are we finally going to solve this whole climate change thing this week? <laughs> Not this week. Oh. But I will say as we go to air, Hurricane Fiona is barreling toward the island of Bermuda as a strong Category 4 hurricane. Mm, not good. And in Puerto Rico, nearly 800,000 households still have no power or clean water after Hurricane Fiona wiped out the island's fragile electric grid, meaning no electricity to run water treatment systems or pump water into homes. Meaning that's for more than 800,000 people. That's well over a couple million at this point. Yep. And, as mentioned, it's the annual gathering of world leaders at the United Nations General Assembly in New York City this week. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres gave a somber assessment of global affairs in his opening address, saying the world is, quote, in great peril and gridlocked, unwilling to face the major challenges that threaten the future of humanity, like climate change, poverty and war. Guterres cited the mounting toll of record-shattering extreme weather disasters that scientists say are supercharged by the burning of fossil fuels. He called for rich nations to end billion-dollar annual subsidies to the fossil fuel industry that are effectively subsidizing climate destruction and to claw back some of the industry's record profits from spiking energy prices thanks to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Thanks, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Polluters must pay. And today I'm calling on all developed economies to tax the windfall profits of fossil fuel companies. Those funds should be redirected in two ways to countries suffering loss and damage caused by the climate crisis, and to people struggling with rising food and energy prices. Wealthy nations have long resisted paying poorer countries for loss and damage from climate disasters and helping them to adapt to accelerating impacts. Even though they're the ones who caused all of this trouble. And that is going to be a major point of contention for the next UN Climate Summit in November in Egypt. A leaked document obtained by The Guardian this week shows that poorer countries intend to demand a new financial settlement, potentially with new taxes on fossil fuel use, to fund loss and damage payments and adaptation projects. Good. But some good news on that front. This week, Denmark became the first wealthy country in United Nations history to pledge compensation to the developing world for the consequences of fossil fuel use. Also good. Denmark pledged to pay more than $13 million to support countries hard hit by extreme weather disasters. Well, that's not much money. No, it's not. In other news, in a new report, the Government Accountability Office warns the federal government faces rising fiscal exposure from increasingly costly extreme weather disasters and that government-wide action is needed to limit the financial risks. The GAO recommends agencies incorporate climate resilience into their infrastructure and planning, and Congress and agencies should develop a clear strategic national plan to guide national climate adaptation efforts. Oh, I'm sure they will. And some more good news. Billionaire former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg announced that he is taking on the plastics industry with an $85 million campaign aimed at blocking the petrochemical industry's push to increase production of plastics that are made from fossil fuels. Well, now that he's gotten rid of all the guns and solved global warming, I'm sure his plastics campaign will be gangbusters. The Beyond Petrochemicals Initiative seeks to block more than 120 proposed petrochemicals chemical projects in the United States and will bolster local environmental justice groups. 
And finally, some very good news. I'll be the judge of that. On Wednesday, the U.S. Senate finally joined the rest of the world in ratifying the Kigali Amendment to the 1987 Montreal Protocol, the first global climate treaty that saved the ozone layer, which protects all life on Earth. The Kigali Amendment phases out the use of climate-warming hydrofluorocarbons, or HFCs. Those are newer chemical superpollutants used in refrigeration and air conditioning. U.S. companies backed it now that they hold patents on the products that the world will need to replace them. And that attracted just enough Republican votes to pass. Okay, that is very good news. For much more on that and all of the other stories we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Excellent. Thank you very much, Desi Doy. And before we get out, I know we've got a quick update on Fiona. Yes. We go. Yes, Hurricane Fiona is still barreling toward Bermuda as we go to air, but it is heading up to Nova Scotia, apparently. And so a big warning for folks up in New England and near Nova Scotia. Now I hear it's a Category 4 near Bermuda, but by the time it gets up to Canada, it could be down to a Category 1? It could be, but the problem is that it will also, at that time, transition into a superstorm with characteristics of both a strong hurricane and a strong autumn cyclone with hurricane force winds, very heavy rain, large storm surge, and an exceptionally wide wind field. So, like, Superstorm Sandy was a huge storm, like a Mm. thousand miles across. This is also potentially going to be another big, big storm. Mm. So even if you're nowhere near it, you might still get impacts from it. Be careful, Nova Scotia. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Des Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or just want to listen again or share it with your friends and your enemies alike, you can stop by bradblog.com, download it for free. Thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you'll find me at the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Who